Welcome to the Challenge Chronicles. I'm Devin Jordan. I'm with Trace Armstrong and Rob McIntyre. How are we doing, guys? It's a beautiful day. We're at the Inferno 2. <laughs> we made it. Good. We're here. <laughs> we survived. <laughs> we survived two seasons of Battle of the Sexes to get to here. <laughs> we we crawled through a, a hundred miles, of, or what is it in Shawshank Redemption? A hundred yards of crap to make it out to the other side. And we're finally in Mexico. We did it. <laughs> and literally, we're in yeah, Mexico this in season Mexico, two. Yeah. <laughs> is, and I have this in my notes, and let's just jump right off to it now. We're here today to talk about uh, Inferno 2. We finished Battle of the Sexes 2 in our last podcast, which was released uh, at this point uh, yesterday as we record this. We are here to talk about the first four episodes of Inferno 2. If you want to subscribe to us on iTunes, you can do that. You can find us at The Challenge Chronicles. You can subscribe to us on our website, which is thechallengechronicles.podbean.com. If you have any questions, comments, concerns about the show, you can email us at thechallengechronicles at gmail.com. And if you would like to buy some beautiful shirts and paraphernalia, you can go to bigdubdiesel.com, dub with two Bs, D-U-B-B, and buy your own Johnny Rules Police shirt, a Big Dub Diesel shirt, or a beautifully branded Challenge Chronicles shirt. And with that, let's talk about the Inferno 2. And is this the first great season of the Challenge? That's what yeah. I have in my notes. And I, I think it is. I don't know. On, my li- on my list, it was. Yes. This was the first season to crack the top 16. I think these I'm, first four episodes are fire. See, man, you guys, you guys are really... I, I think they're definitely decent. I don't think... I think the season gets much better, though, as we get past these first four. Yeah, I I love this. These first four episodes, like I mean, without commercials, I mean, we zoom each episode's maybe twenty minutes. Yeah, you can and zoom past them real quick. These eighty minutes seemed like it took zero time because I was engaged with everything that was yep. happening, and there was not one moment of filler. Like it just zoomed. Super low effort. Super low effort. There were the first battle of the sexes and battle of the sexes too. At some point, it required effort to get through those episodes. This was just nonstop action, pretty much. I This is, <clears throat> and I don't know if, I think these first four episodes were fired just because of what we have been through in the recent past and the fact that we just got through Battle of the Sexes 2, or if they are actually this, this good. I think this season as a whole is pretty great, but I'm definitely excited to talk about these first four episodes. Same. And we'll get to it as we jump into the first episode. But the tone of the challenges took a dramatic shift. And I don't think I ever realized until we started watching the show from a more analytical standpoint, just the vibe of the daily challenges is extremely different. Like it, especially the first one, it was really shocking. I'm sure for the cast to be like, holy cow, we're not screwing around anymore. Real quick, you can tell the contestants on the show took a loss much more personally this season than they had in seasons past. You could tell that they were like visibly and like emotionally distraught if they weren't able to perform for their team and win uh, any of the competitions. Yeah. It's funny to contrast this opening mission with the first one in battle of the sexes one, because mm-hmm. like on the surface, they're relatively similar yep. missions, but then watching them actually, there's just so much more intensity in this one versus that one. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So let's take a minute and run down this cast because there's only, in my opinion, there are only two replaceable members on this cast. And they are Shavonda and Karamo. What about 
So I think headed into the season, I would have said that this person was replaceable, but I forgot how good he was in this season in the short time that he's here. Well, actually, he's here for quite quite a long time, but Dan, Dan Renzi. Dan he is Renzi. phenomenal in these I, first four I told you when we were talking about this earlier, he is great on this season. You need mm-hmm. him around. Yeah. And he it, was not very visible in the first Battle of the Sexes. Yeah, but and, nobody was all that visible in Battle of the Sexes one besides Puck. This is also true. There was and uh, Ruthie crying Ellen and, and Ellen. That was pretty <laughs> and, much what the, the show and, revolved and, around. With. And, well, and, and Antoine. Or how was like, his name. Those like... Yeah, Antoine was gold. It was like those gr- that group of like three women that were always in the inner circle and Puck. And that's pretty much what monopolized the screen time in that season. But Dan is phenomenal here. He, he really has some is. Great quotes. Yeah. And, you know, you could probably make the argument that um, real world Los Angeles John, who uh, goes home first, is replaceable. I would actually say no, because. When you go, when you look at this from putting the context of when this season aired, he was the, he and Beth are the two oldest and longest running people from a real world show. So they mm-hmm. had two people on each team that went as far back as season two of uh, the real world. So, and John really was the ultimate white hat good guy for the show. Mm-hmm. Like, with it, I mean, he kind of annoys me a little bit here because I think he took his. As, as a Christian, I'll say this. I think he took his Christianity proselytizing he a, took little it a little far. far here. He took it way. T- I mean, it was a stretch. And like we're, it re- we're reaching on Chadwick levels of uh, yeah. attitude. I mean, I, but the, the difference was, is I felt like John was sincere, but I also just felt like it was a bit of a stretch for me. He's like, really? That's the way you thought? Or were you just needing to go home and this well, was a way not, for he, you he, to... He acts like he's playing like a, uh, like a priest character in the South Park episode or something. <laughs> That's fair. So, but even then, like, he really fits for the good guy team because he really is the ultimate white hat good guy player. So, to me, is it like, is he replaceable? Maybe, possibly, but somebody's got to go home first. Yeah, that's the thing with always this. With always these, um, when you're looking to these casts, it's like if you could replace him, then you're any like whoever you replace him with is also probably going to be gone in episode two anyway. So, yeah. And the only reason that I say that Karamo and Shivanda are replaceable is Karamo really didn't do anything to stand Karamo out. Is such a Karamo is such a dud, man. Not only did he not stand out from a social standpoint, but he also did not stand out from a performance. I, I would say he did stand out and that he stood out horribly. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and then Shivanda, I f- kept forgetting she was even on the season in the first four I episodes. Think, well, she, she had a relationship with Landon, right, on Real World Philadelphia. Or I don't even that remember up. that. I never saw I the like, season. I feel like they did. Well, I, I think they did. and I think that was like they were trying to rekindle something there with her and Landon, but that didn't really happen. Yeah. So to make this super explicit for those of you that haven't seen the season, this is the first time that uh, the challenge did a season where it wasn't real world versus road rules if it wasn't Battle of the Sexes, because Battle of the Sexes was the exception to this point where real world and road rules could be on the same team. This go around, it's the good guys versus the badasses. Um, Do you feel like anyone on either team was miscast as a good guy or a bad guy at this point? Miz. No, (laughs) no. Miz is like that's what he's kind of been built up like throughout the sh- the entire course of like this show's history. Well, I don't know. I de- I I could definitely see him going the other way. Okay, if if this is Miz right after Battle of the Seasons, then wh- where is he getting put? 
He's still a good guy. He's still a good guy because that's kind of how the perception that I feel like everyone on the show had of him, right? Like everyone kind of looked to him as like the leader of the team. And on, I think all of the teams that he has been on to this point, when we eliminate battle of the sexes too, he's been on the team that's perceived as the underdog. Mm -hmm. And he tends to be the captain. Like, and, and also at the time, like Miz was like, if you were to say, in pop culture in the early 2000s, when you say the real world of the challenge, most people could name you Miz, and that might be about it. Like Miz, Coral, maybe. Mark maybe. Long, that's about it. Yeah. Maybe. This is also the first season that The Miz does without Coral, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. And you know what's really interesting? Watching these first four episodes, I know we had mentioned it before. This is by far his best performance competitively and politically ever and he really went out on a high note and i think a lot of the legend of the miz as this hardcore competitor revolves around this season because he really was great i think this is his best i don't know say by far though because i still don't think he's all that dominant this season yeah i mean he wins like almost every life shield it's not it doesn't land him win more than he does Mm, it's him and landon landon for the good guys team landon or the miz i think that think wins at every single no, mission, except for except yeah. Jarrell wins except it one time, and then for the badasses, CT pretty much CT does just, almost CT a clean pretty much sweep. cleans house here. Yeah, yeah, and this CT is another here. great thing about this season. In Inferno one, CT is there, and there's kind of like him doing parts of drama or confessionals. This season, CT had an actual personality on camera. Like when he gets a check, he does like this weird shuck and jive dance to get to the check and. Same thing for the life shield. It felt like CT actually found an on-camera personality in these first four episodes. So if we were to replace Karamo from the badass team and Shavonda from the good guys team, who would we put in their position for each of their teams? No I, know question. That for, I know that for the badass team, when we've had this previous conversation, we Chad Ac- Chadwick was someone that we threw out there. Is there anyone else uh, that we have? Well, yeah, you brought up Steven. I think if they could get him to come on again, Puck obviously is going to be my pick. But outside of that, I think CEO Vaughn would be who I'd want on the team. I think he goes on the good guys, though. He goes on the good guys. That would be hard. Yeah. Because he's funny. He is perceived as this funny dude. He's not a badass. Funny doesn't mean that you're not like, well, Dan's funny. Dan's on the badass team. Yeah, that's kind of a miscast, in my opinion. Like, I think someone being funny, a lot of villains are funny. Yeah, I just don't think he's a villain, though. Like, he was always kind of... Well, on Battle of the Sexes 1, he was portrayed as, like, the girl's favorite guy team member. So it's kind of hard to see him as a badass from that perspective. I think they just wait, wanted wait, wait, him say, on the say, season. Who, who Say again who? Dan Renzi. Oh, Dan, Dan Renzi, oh. Yeah. I think the thing is, though, like, is what, what, what do you think these themes mean exactly? Because in my opinion, I think it's more almost about, like extroversion versus introversion and chaos versus order. Type mm, like, I, I don't think, necessarily think that I think they kind of, this is one comment that I'll make um, that kind of encapsulates the whole season. Each of the teams and the people on each of the teams really internalizes the theme of their team as a good guy or a bad kind of funny ass, right? Almost they do it. They treat it as almost like this is what I have to do based on what team I'm on. This <laughs> this was like uh, vendettas before vendettas with how oh, often Lord. people mention uh, like a catchphrase from the season, right? You hear people yeah. say good guys and 
badasses like nonstop. Yeah, and, and I when have Robin a goes home that. in the fourth episode, yeah, she gives this long speech about how she's <laughs> proud to be a good guy and how good always win. I was about to bring that up, man. I was cringing so hard. I was like, oh, this is oh god, this is so right. bad. Do you think something? Else- Go ahead, Rob. So do you think Miz, what do you think, which team did Miz want to be on? The good guys. He you totally wanted to be persona. on the good guys. I think, what do you feel like a WWE wrestler? Like, is it, is it being on the badass? Is it going to see you a little bit more? Yeah, I don't but know. I, mean, I think there's still like in wrestling and I'm not too familiar with, with wrestling, wrestling, right? There's the good guy and then there's the heel, right? Well, and there's the yeah, face he, is not, he is not the heel, right? Well, he is. Well, he's not anymore. But for the most of his wrestling career, he was the heel. But okay. at this point, he was brought in. He was one of the like. Okay, so we have to put Miz in his proper context right now. So when he filmed this season, he had literally just finished um, uh, uh, doing Tough Enough, which was running on SmackDown. And so right after all of that ended in. Like it was somewhere in 2004. I can't remember exactly the time frame. He was then signed by WWE to go work in their developmental program in Ohio. And he was actually pulled out of developmental to do this season with the idea of helping the partnership. Because at the time, one of the WWE shows was on MTV. So MTV was like, hey, we want The Miz and we'll do something for you to scratch our back, WWE, so we could have The Miz for one more year. So. Yeah, Miz was actively a member of WWE when this season was filming. If we replaced Shavonda with someone else throughout the course of Challenge history, who would it be? Someone that immediately came to mind for me was maybe someone like Ruthie. I think she could be on there. Who I don't know else? how much Ruthie really, brings, really adds, though, at this point. She would have been better than Shavonda, though. I think almost anybody would have been better than Shavonda at this point. And that's not a knock on. Well, it kind of is a knock on. Can we bring back Arissa just to see her complain more? (laughs) Yo, I wanted to win today. (laughs) Real quick, how is Coral not on the badass team? Why why are Coral and Miz on opposite teams? What do you mean? She's not on this season. Well, I'm saying if you're saying if Coral was cash, he'd be on the badass team. The Miz, yeah. why, why are they on opposite teams? I think that because it's a smaller cast, they decided to diversify a little bit. And honestly, Tina is the only new female on the badass team. Every well, other person, new. every other person is way newer than Tina. You mean way older? Or older? Excuse me. On the on the female well, side, because well, Beth has been around much, forever. Is Tanya that much older? Yeah, no, but I mean, she had done Battle of the Sexes 1. She had done Gauntlet. Yeah, I guess so. And she I did always, Battle of the Sexes 2. I always forget that Tina was on the first Gauntlet. Because she's on the first Gauntlet, then she's not on Inferno and, 1, and then she's on Battle of the Sexes 2. But I do not think that Tanya is on Battle of the Sexes 1. Is that what you said? I think she was, or was she Gauntlet 1? Both, I feel I like think uh, the first season for both of them is Gauntlet 1. Hold uh, on. I gotta get, look it up. We didn't get this stuff in order next time beforehand because I feel like we argue about whether people were on Battle of the Sexes <laughs> 1 every single time. It's because we choose to forget how bad it is. <laughs> to, the, uh, to the two commenters out there who, uh, who criticize us for uh, looking stuff up in the, uh, in the middle of the show, this is for you right now. Wow, no, she was on Battle of the Sexes 1. 
Really? I do not remember she that was, at all. Yeah, no, she was the eighth girl voted off, so she was there for the first eight episodes. That's what I was so she did Battle yeah. of the Sexes 1 and 2 and The Gauntlet. So she had done three seasons by the time she gets to Inferno 2. Yeah, she I guess has, uh, kind of I guess kind of the thing with the show then is like if you're on if you're like a newer person, you're just going to come on I guess as a face and then eventually become a villain. At least that's how the, these people are portrayed. Mhm. Cuz I'm Someone thinking th- about it, the, everybody that's on the badass team other than Karamo and Dan like everyone had had a black hat moment on the challenge itself. What if you put Kendall on the good guys team? Well, that's a good, that's of, a good that's Yeah, a that's actually a great choice. I, I would say Kendall. Especially with the relationships that she has with everyone else on the season. Oh, yeah. yeah her and Miz together again would be fun. The yeah. Miz and she was also on the road rules team for a lot of the people that are on the badass team. Mm hmm. She was on the, they were all on campus crawl together. So she would have been uh, with Darrell from the good guys team, Rachel. Um, yeah, no, that would, be, that would have been a great choice, actually. Um, so we have three players on this season from real world Philadelphia in Landon, Shabanda, and Karamo. How popular of a season was that? I think, um, Chase, you probably know more than I do, but I think that was a relatively popular season. This was a time frame where I was not watching the real world or the challenge. I did not see Inferno 2 until around the time of Duel 1. Okay, I'm looking up its ratings now. But yeah, yeah. I think this was, I think that was a relatively, I just remember people talking about that season at DC. Yeah, the thing, the thing that I remember more than anything from what little I know about Philadelphia was Landon and MJ being bros. They went and got like a bro tattoo while they were on the show. So, like, Landon and MJ both have the same tattoo. That's I all think, I remember. Yeah, and, then, and then I think I remember after the show, too, Landon talked about this one time that, like, they kind of had a falling out, and then they, they didn't really talk much since. Mm. Interesting. All right. Let's get into the first episode. Episode. Do either of you have any other points that you want to mention before we move on? No, I think every other point I've got kind of naturally falls somewhere in an episode. Yeah. All right. Let's do it. Episode one, the plane lands. They start to highlight a bunch of different moments from previous seasons and the relationships of the characters. Veronica versus Julie is highlighted and their uh, relationship from the first Inferno where Julie did or did not, depending on who you believe, try and end Veronica's life on a a zip line. Uh, Tina. uh, This is another comment that I have about... uh, this season as opposed to previous seasons as well. The confessionals are significantly more polished. And I don't know if they kind of coach them a little bit more in when they shoot the confessionals or what happens, but the, the Miz and Tina are very good at giving confessionals. And I feel like they used to be decent before, but they really stand out in these first four episodes. Well, I think one of the reasons why is because with the smaller cast, you don't have to give like token confessionals to people who don't really deserve it. And like people who aren't good at confessionals, you can just give them one or two every here, like here and there. And then you can give people who are actually like good at giving confessionals more confessions. You don't have as many just random ones to give out. I 100% agree with Rob. And I think the other thing, too, is is that these people by this point have played the game long enough. The better your confessionals are and the more 
I don't mm-hmm. know, I don't want to say controversy, but the more well-spoken and of an actor or actress you are, the more screen time you get, which translates to more money off the show. Yeah. They're just more experienced at it. Mm-hmm. And with that, after we get the initial highlights of everyone that's on the season, we get into one of the greatest moments in media <laughs> history with, I would say, a an undisputed top three challenge intro. Okay, that's what we're with going with this. The good guys versus badasses is they show up to their high school prom. And I will say that whoever <laughs> thought of this a theme and song is a singular genius. I agree. I mean, yeah. it is phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal. And this, this one is, really is an A+. Plus. This is the prototype for a challenge intro, right? Catchy tune, theme, and cheesy. Those are the three characteristics that it has to have. Yeah, it, any challenge intro prior to, like, cutthroat needs to just have the, the corniness, like, ramped up to at level 11. You need costumes. You need themes that are just rammed over your head. You need, like, catchy songs. This, this one has it all. It certainly does. And on top of that, this is the first time that they really create a challenge uh, elimination building from scratch because in previous seasons, like you have the gauntlet happened on top of a pool in Colorado. (laughs) Um, You had, you know, uh, elimination Hill or whatever for the battle of the sexes. Elimination like place though. They just go. Yeah. They just would vote somebody off like survivor or some silliness. And then, and then for the first Inferno, it was just like the back, you know, courtyard of the house. This is like a full on, like tortured. I don't know what you want to call it. Like, How much uh, do you think this cost to build? Uh, it, they spent some money. I mean, there's is, no way that. Yeah, this is legit impressive. I'm not going to lie. I mean, there's cages, there's fire for pyro, there's a custom built entrance and a ramp. Each team uh, has like their own little, like, like chained in area, too. Yeah, it's like a dungeon. I mean, it really is like a dungeon with pyro. Do you think it's still there or do they tear it down? Mm, depends on where in Mexico it is. <laughs> uh, I really hope they're having, like, back roads, Mexican, you know, like cage matches or something going on back there. <laughs> illegal illegal yeah, exactly. cockfights or something. <laughs> yeah. The production value in the season is also significantly higher, too. Like, around the house, you'll notice that they have, like, different, like, TV monitors set up that just say, like, Inferno 2 on them. Mm-hmm. And I think the editing is definitely a, a little bit different in this season, too, that it kind of like gives more resonance to like drama and just emotion that happens uh, within the game. It but, does. And here's the <clears throat> other thing I want to bring this up before we go any further too. Uh, looking at the credits, this is the first season where Justin Booth is the supervising producer. So it leads me to believe that like his coming on as the executive producer is kind of what changed the flow and the tempo mm-hmm. and the look and feel because prior to this, he was, he was a part of the, the, the producing staff, but he was not the, the big guy in charge for the entire season. And in this season he is, I tried to look up in charge. I thought he was like, I thought he was kind of like, like not in charge in charge. He's like still kind of like second rung. 
Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, um, John Murray is always the one technically in charge, but he's not at the location anymore like he was for Battle of the Sexes one. Like yeah. he was legitimately on. <laughs> he's location not coming out to the bus anymore. To, to, to get to, to, the to for the puck thing, yeah, uh, <laughs> no, but like this is the season where Booth is fully in charge of the whole season on location, and, the, and so I have a feeling his influence is probably what changed that feel um, and the way that the show is edited and portrayed. I tried to look it up before we started earlier today, and I wasn't able to come to a conclusion. Uh, but I did notice that his name was, I want to say, one of the first names in the credits at the end of the episodes. But this season stands in stark contrast to every other season before it. And there is definitely a catalyst, and it may be his presence, that shifts the show in a direction that it had not been in before. Yeah, and we've but, talked about this before. Sorry, I'm going to jump back in. But his his influence is also felt again with the current season that's airing uh, War of the Worlds because the previous three seasons he was not the supervising producer. And with the exception of Dirty 30, you know, there's been a lot of complaints about the flow of the show, the types of challenges, the final. There's, there's been complaints about the flow since Battle of the Bloodline, so. That's fair, but he was still the supervising producer at that point, and it's still like you can you can make a lot of arguments about the final for Battle of the Bloodlines. I still think the Battle of the Bloodlines final is a legit final, uh, as is Invasion. I don't understand why that gets singled out as such a problem. Honestly, like I think the Vendetta's final final is such a bigger like a, a problem. I think that Final Reckoning and Vendettas were two really poor finals, but that's a that's a sidetrack. But regardless, my point is is that he's the guy back in charge again, making those decisions, and it's very noticeable with the current season War of the Worlds that he's in charge again. As we get into the introduction of the cast members in the Inferno Arena with the return of Dave Mira, which we have not mentioned, and in my notes I have written down as Dave Mira starts to speak. I miss Mosley. Um, <laughs> we get an inter- introduction to the format. Uh, there are 20 players this season. The final challenge is worth $150,000. There will be 15 challenges throughout the course of the season, each worth $10,000. And the mechanics of the game, of this game, work as opposed to the first Inferno, where each team will vote a member from the opposing team into the Inferno to face off in elimination. Whereas prior you nominated someone from your own team. Am I correct, Rob? That is correct. And if you are nominated to go into the Inferno by the opposing team, the challenge that happens the day after nominations, you will still have the opportunity to compete in the challenge finish first in the challenge for your team, win what is called the Aztec Life Shield this season, and be able to save yourself from elimination. So the person that wins the Aztec Life Shield has the opportunity to, if they are nominated into the Inferno, not go into the Inferno. And if you were not previously nominated to go into the Inferno, save the person that is currently in the Inferno. But with that, we get into the moment where everyone goes into the house and see how nice the house is. This is definitely, this house is definitely a lot nicer than some of the houses that they had previously been on in this show. And I think um, we get some more moments about the relationships with the people that are on the show and the dynamics that uh, come into play. 
And Tina has a really good quote here about her relationship with Tanya, where she says, it's not a rivalry because for a rivalry, you need competition. <laughs> Tanya is, my, is not my competition. She's my doormat. And She's this is wrong. pretty much like the level of Tina's confessionals throughout the course of the entire season. She is just like nonstop. And I feel like I've gotten a greater appreciation for her as we've rewatched these episodes than I had before we started to do this podcast. Absolutely. She's a gem. But that gets us into our first challenge, which is called surf torture. And I think one of you had mentioned it before. This is pretty much a more hyped up version of the first challenge that they did in Battle of the Sexes 1. So the premise for this challenge is that there are two Navy SEALs that will give members of each of the teams commands for them to perform. And each of the teams splits up into partners. And with their partner, they have to go through kind of this like drill sergeant type game where they either do wheelbarrows down to the beach and back up. They have to carry logs. They have to press these half logs above their head, which range from 40 to 65 pounds. And this is essentially an endurance competition. And even though it seems like it would be relatively easy and not too much of a challenge, you can tell that pretty much everyone in that participated in this was drained by the time that they were eliminated. Sure. And I think that this went on for a long time. Like, I don't think this was a 15 minute challenge. Like this looked like something that went on for 30 minutes to an hour. And the reason I say that is if you watch the two teams that were the final two, they slowly get sunburned through the challenge and you don't get a sunburn show up in 20 minutes. So I kind of think they were out there a while. That's one, thing is, one thing that's really funny too with the start of this mission is so the um, both teams reason to the strategy where it's like, okay, it's okay for the few pairs that suck. We just need one super good pair. So mm-hmm. for the good guys, they are like, okay, two strong, two, our two best guys. And immediately they just single out Landon, even though he has never competed in anything before. You can just tell like he's going to be good. Mm-hmm. Because both teams come to the realization that you don't need the whole team to do well. It's not like this is a mission where they average the times together of each of the teams and the highest average time wins. This is whoever's your, your last team remaining wins. So if the last team for the good guys is there longer than the last team for the badasses, the good guys win. And the badasses, as they start to pick their teams, Tanya is paired with Beth, and Tanya is very upset <laughs> about not, please. <laughs> and Dan responds, let me be honest, just a second. You two are probably not going to win right to their <laughs> right to their faces, <laughs> just trying to get them to grasp what's going on. And Tanya is just really stubborn and doesn't want to accept that what she does as part of this team doesn't necessarily matter for this mission. Tanya suffers from Adam King syndrome. They think they are way better and way more important than they actually are. I would agree. I think that's a good way to, I I don't think she always used to be this way either. Like, I feel like she used to have more of like, I think she used to have like, at least in the gauntlet, she used to have like, I think there's a progression. So she may have been like that, but not to the extent that she is now. So I would say in the gauntlet and probably in battle, the sex is one, even though, the first continent, yes, she was. Oh, Tony, you're right. I'm sorry. Yeah, you're right. I was thinking the infirmary. Yeah. yeah, you're right. No. Um, 
she may have had a little bit of that to her personality, but not to the extent that she does now and not to the extent that she does throughout the rest of the time she's on the challenge. Mm -hmm. But as we get into the challenge, I don't know how we really want to go over this. They do some wheelbarrows, I, I guess. Who are the standouts in this challenge and who kind of stood out in a, in a good or bad way? Karamo stands out horribly. He is a disaster. And then, like, a few of the teams you expect to not do that great don't end up doing that great. So I don't think. Then, I, I really, I just, this ends up coming down to it as it's just Abram and Derek versus the Miz and Landon. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I would actually say, too, that the team of uh, CT and Rachel did really yeah. well. Because, I mean, CT's not a small guy. And then on top of that, Jody and Darrell, the Jody fact that Jody kept too. up with Darrell as long as she did is. Well, she beat out Rachel, too. Like, she outperformed she Rachel in this one. She did. And so I feel like it kind of set the tone that these teams are very evenly matched. The, and we can talk about it now and kind of keep this as a theme throughout uh, this first podcast episode. The good guys lose three out of the first four missions. And I don't think it's necessarily because there's a significant talent difference. I think that they just happen to lose three out of four missions. Well, yeah, if you, if you flip a coin four times, there's a decent amount of chance that it comes out to be times tails, one times heads. Like that's, it's, that's not a super large margin. And, and, and I think that's exactly what happens here. I think yeah. that like these teams are relatively even matched and they just happen to have lost, uh, happen yeah. to have lost the first three missions. Agreed. Having even matched teams though is also such a nice, like, actual thing to happen because on the challenge it seems like about 65 to 75 percent of seasons that are teams you have at least one team that's just an absolute disaster Train wreck. where like yep. yeah like, like their politics are a fiasco the rookies and gauntlet three yeah competitively they're a debacle they have three people who whenever they compete in anything you just have your like your hands right? like oh my when god you, when they split up teams do you think they intentionally do that do you think I, that they make do you think they try and split them up evenly, or do you think that they intentionally have a disaster team? I don't. Because I, I honestly, I'm, I'm pretty sure they like. I'm pretty sure that they do that in Survivor at times, where there is a. In Survivor makes a bit more seasons, sense. Yeah, in three team seasons, they try and split it, or or maybe they do it even two. But I think that they may do it just from the sense that it gives more drama to the show, mm-hmm. and it gives more. Um, there's more action that'll happen than if they split them up evenly. But see, I, I would tend to, I think it's a false. Even, yeah. I don't no. even think they put that much thought into it. Honestly, like when they make their teams, they just never seem to like, cause if you look like they'll just like, they'll just, they're just trying to figure out a way to split them up. And then there are ways that they end up splitting them up just often end up not being fair. Cause like, they're like, yeah. what's the way we can split them? Up? Okay. I guess we can just do rookies versus veterans. All right. We'll just do yeah. that. Or we'll do champions versus challengers. I'm actually, they sort of run out of things to do. Yeah. Well, like, see, go ahead. Well, no, just and then other times, like on Cutthroat, they'll just like, to, well, like the players pick the teams, or again on like Freshman or War of the World. So I just don't even think they put that much thought into it. Yeah, and see, I would actually throw it up to the fact that yeah, I think it's just a matter of what people they can actually cast, and then they just figure out the format. You know, are they they have a format in mind and they try to make a cast fit it? And there's always going to be some oddball like they don't really fit here, but we don't have enough to fit the format, so we're just going to fudge this a little bit. AKA Johnny and Battle of the Exes one and two and you know <laughs> all yeah, that like, kind of like, stuff. Like Camilla being on Team Fresh Meat and Battle of the Seasons. Yeah, it just really didn't make any sense. Um, but you know, the other thing to think through as well is I don't think I think that production really does think through. Like you look at the ruins, you know, as it played out, 
the 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 challengers got cremated because a the vets that were controlling the game were so good at playing the game not just in the challenges but the politics and then the one really horrible person on the challengers team Casey was so bad that she single-handedly cost her team several missions because she was so bad. Well, also the way the project, like the way the game was set up, that they, the um, like the challengers team couldn't get her voted in because the challengers yeah. were controlling the vote every time. Well, and they were able I mean, to protect someone, weren't they? Like yeah. they were able to say, like, oh, no, no, you. Well, it was like there was you nominated three people, and whichever team won got to pick which of the three people from each team. Uh, I got you. And like I mean, with that with that season, like you have like Johnny and Kenny are like the fifth and sixth best guys in the champions team. So I, I just don't think there was ever a chance. As each of the teams are whittled down until their final uh, pairs each, it comes down to the Miz and Landon versus Derek and Abe. There is a little bit of a dramatic buildup, but it looks like Derek and Abe could have gone quite a bit longer when the Miz gasses out and the badasses win the first challenge of Inferno too. And I don't know if there's much more we want to say about that. The only thing I'll bring up is this was by to me, I say by far a lot. So I'm going to say something else. Uh, This was Abram's best showing in a daily challenge in his history of the show to this point. Cause he had always, he's always had this amazing reputation, but to me prior to this season, he's been average. Well, yes. I don't even know if he's had an amazing reputation up to this point. I think he's, has it now but i don't think up to this point you saw that that much that's what i mean though like today people look back and go oh abe's a challenge legend and he is but he did not have a really good showing until this season i still even think he's all that great on this season i think he doesn't really good if it wasn't for the threesome and gauntlet one he was wallpaper wallpaper is a bit much he has the moments i forget he he's on battle of the sexes too because he goes home pretty early but he does have the moments with coral in battle of the sexes too yeah, but like he does not perform well, but from like a physical standpoint, this was his best like daily challenge performance that I can remember because I don't ever remember him being the reason that a team won a challenge or anything close to that prior to this point. He was pretty solid on the first Inferno, wasn't he? From what I remember. Yeah, he was fine. I think he was definitely a little bit overshadowed by Darrell and Timmy, who mm-hmm. were great competitors on that season. But as we get into nomination, the good guys are now tasked with selecting from someone on the badasses to go into the Inferno. And they decide that they want to throw in a weaker guy. And the tone that permeates this first nomination is that both teams are kind of unsure what the other team will do. And the good guys take one approach and the badasses take a completely different approach. The badasses pretty much right away... Uh, decide that they want to go after someone strong from the men's team. And CT said he says he wants the Miz to go down and they want to get him while he's weak after he just lost the challenge for the good guys. And as we get to the grand reveal, the good guys decide to send in Dan and the badasses send in the Miz. And after the nomination, Dan has a great quote where he says, I hope it's not breaking rocks against your head because I'll lose. But if it's sing- singing Madonna songs, oh my God, I'm totally going to win. <laughs> yeah, how, how great is like the little Aztec playhouse, like little figurines they have too to put the people in elimination? It's pretty good. Like, they also have so something- excessive too. Like you think there's no need for it, but they just throw it in the set anyways. They also have something like that in Inferno 3, right? With the 
kind of like African yeah, like, it's figures like masks. that they put in. No, it's like it's like masks. Okay. Yeah. But they did the same thing in Inferno One too, because you had the plates you had to set yeah, on the, the little plates. pedestal. Yeah. I really like that Inferno that in Inferno One because as they went to place the plate on the pedestal, the teams had to cross pass with with each other, and you got some good moments from uh, their interactions with each other as they went to uh, show the opposing team who they decided to nominate. Yeah, it'd be funny to do that this season was like hiding the figurine from the other team as they walk by. <laughs> and that pretty much concludes episode one i guess mm-hmm. the only other point that i would want to mention at the end of episode one is that the miz gives his closing speech and i think at this point mike is pretty much gone and we only get the miz because his closing speech here and his confessional at the start of the season was pretty much like straight rick flair and that's mm-hmm. what we get like <laughs> throughout the entire course of inferno too it is and if i remember right too he had been taking acting classes for several years at this point so like he had his character and the way he portrayed himself on screen pretty honed down at this point as we get into episode two in my notes i have written is this one of the drunkest challenges (laughs) in challenge history because i think that might be this might be number one so before the challenge in episode two it's pretty much a montage of the shenanigans and debauchery that ensues within the house. You have Veronica doing a keg stand. You have uh, people just partying throughout the house. Landon and Derek start to wrestle on concrete as uh, they're next to ledges that could drop them two stories down to the ground. Yeah, it seems like um, some of the producer are letting that continue for as long as they did. It definitely a sketchy situation. And the Miz actually goes to break the Miz goes to break it up. And Derek stands up to the Miz as uh, Derek is pulled away from Landon. And I think the Derek has a little bit of a chip on his shoulder when it comes to the Miz, because he from his standpoint, he went home last season when the Miz should have gone home and feels that he was treated unfairly by the men's alliance in Battle of the Sexes, too. Yep. And then you contrast all this drunkenness with Julie talking about getting married and talking home about how everyone here has no morals. And <laughs> then you've got John and Julie doing their thing. And it's just like, oh, boy. Yeah, taking on the Holly Chadwick role, basically, from TV. Yeah. It was rough. As we get into the challenge, this challenge is called Juice It Up. And the object of this challenge is to grab. Uh, grapefruit, I think it is. It's pretty much, I think it's just grapefruit. Grab grapefruit from that's suspended in the air on one end of the field, race across the field and take the grapefruit and try and squeeze as much juice out of it as you can through this strainer and into a jar in the shortest amount of time. And your times will be combined with everyone else on your team and the team with the shortest or the the fastest average time wins the challenge and the single competitor that has the fastest time will win the aztec lifesaver for the good guys and the badasses but the caveat to all of this is that you have to do this while on stilts and they are not what you would traditionally think of when you think of stilts in your mind they kind of have like a little bit of balance to them you can kind of like 
hop around a little bit. They're, they're literally too- what the in the um, like soccer type mission on Vendettas. They're just the exact same things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And in the event that you fall on the ground, there are two people from each team that are there to kind of help you back up and be able to uh, get you moving again. And the prize for this challenge is an MP3 player to date the show. And, and to date it further, it's a Dell MP3 player. A Dell <laughs> MP3 player. And as the challenge starts, this was a pretty good challenge. What did you guys think of it? I thought this was kind of fun. I thought it was pretty fun. There's one really great moment in it where John is going and he has this confessional where he says his strategy is to get the best time that he can. I like to see like what other strategy he has, like maybe <laughs> get the second best time he can or the third best time he can. But yeah. what's crazy though is John falls. So each of the each of the teams kind of go against each other at the same time. So there's one member from the good guys that goes while another member from the badasses goes. And John goes against Rachel in his heat and falls multiple times and still somehow beats Rachel. How does that happen? It's all because the Rachel isn't a slouch. You, yeah, I think it's all in the technique and how you squeeze the grapefruit juice. The more grip strength you have, the faster you get the juice out. And quite frankly, I think he just he's got these big old meat hook hands and I think he was just able to smash <laughs> the grapefruit. The good guys are way ahead in this challenge until Jody, Jody. comes up. And before Jody goes in her heat, the good guys are winning by over a minute. And after she, her heat, they are down by 40 seconds. So that was really the catalyst in this challenge. And Jody in her heat goes, she's about to uh, finish her heat and then spills all of the juice out of the glass. And has to pretty much start over. She has to go back across the, the field, get another grapefruit, come back and finish. And this really uh, sunk any chance the good guys have of winning this. Yeah. And Shivando was also bad. Like she ran about 40 or 50 seconds off the clock against Tanya as well. And Jody's is just more highlighted because she knocked her glass over and then had to go back. So between Shivanda and Jody, that pretty much killed them. And to kind of emphasize what you said just before, Trace, about this comes down to how you squeeze the grapefruit. The Miz has to win this. Otherwise, he will go into the Inferno. And as the Miz, Miz starts his heat, he falls multiple times coming across the field and still somehow wins this for the good guys or gets the fastest time for the good guys and wins the Aztec life. Is it life's? Shield or Saber? I think it's Life Shield, right? Life Shield. Shield. Wins the Life Shield. And multiple, I think CT makes a comment about it. But the Miz pretty much like takes his grapefruit, takes like a huge bite out of it, and then just like squeezes it into the glass in like one motion and wins. Yeah. Him running is kind of funny too. Just the way he runs for some reason really gets to me. He has like this weird like side to side hop he's got going on. It's just not working for him. You know, I got to bring this up. This is the first challenge where I miss Johnny Mosley. Dave Mira is the host of this season, and he does an an adequate job. He's very bland. 
he's very bland, but he's very good at explaining the rules and that kind of thing. That's yeah, that's definitely what we need from our challenge shows. I miss I missed Johnny Mosley in flip flops and a straw hat with sunscreen on his nose, blowing his whistle every time somebody fell over. What <laughs> they fell over? God, I think this podcast has moved Johnny Mosley and my rankings of challenge hosts above Dave Mira. I would agree. Like, I, I think, think I've gotten, always like, been above. There's just much more debauchery with Mosley than there is. With not for me. Like for me before, if you would have asked me to rank challenge hosts, I would have had Dave Mira ahead of Johnny Mosley, but not anymore. Like, I think we, I don't, I, I feel like collectively we have turned Mosley into a character that is pretty much a, a defining characteristic of a lot of the seasons that he's on. Yeah. I mean, he really is kind of, if you were to ask me who the faces are of the early seasons of the challenge, it's kind of hard to argue that for four or five seasons, Mosley well, was well, as prominent two, as anybody. He's on Gauntlet and Battle of Sexes too. That's it. And he's Battle of Sexes one as well. Oh, that's right. Yeah. He's got, yeah, that's right. They should have brought him back for Gauntlet too. Yeah, but you know that was also TJ's first season, so that Fair. that kind of changes. But uh, obviously, there's some kind of a thing because some of you people are watching. Uh, our t-shirt store has officially been open for a day, and uh, we've already sold six Johnny Rule Police t-shirts compared to zero <laughs> of the rest. So obviously, uh, there's a small cult following so far. Do you, so do you think Mosey just bought all the shirts and just using them as ammunition to sue us down the line? <laughs> Yeah, I don't. I, I think we're so far off his radar; it doesn't matter. <laughs> I think, I think Johnny Mosley was actually the one that did the challenge intro for this season. And when he created it, he kind of like he had like the like persona of Ed Harris in the Truman Show with like kind of like awkward like beret. He's up in the and, moon observing and everything. Glasses and like a black turtleneck. That, that's the role that Mosley has <laughs> taken on in the challenge universe at this point. <laughs> he's he's up, up on the crane doing <laughs> rules like beaming TJ. TJ, that's a DQ. <laughs> oh he's my gone, god! He he pretty much was promoted in the same way that uh, Major League Baseball organizations changed their hierarchy or hierarchy from having like general managers being the ones in charge to now they're like president of baseball operations. Mosley has now taken on that role. He's beyond. He's president of college operations. operations. Good lord. He's president yeah. of Challenge Rules Operations. <laughs> the last comment that I want to make about this challenge before we move on is, did anyone see the shorts that CT was wearing here? <laughs> no, I didn't. What did I miss? CT was wearing, like, a denim kimono. He, like, <laughs> like a <laughs> denim skirt. Like, they were, like, these shorts are, like, at his ankles. And, like, they're pretty much, like, like, uh... Like what, what, like capris, capri denims, but like baggy capri, capri short, jean shorts. They're ridiculous. Rob, did you notice them? I actually did not notice them. No, that might have to be the uh, image for the the album artwork for. I, I the, will the uh, thumbnail. I will screenshot them. Okay. <laughs> not, not having John and Mosey is really going to hurt our uh, thumbnail game. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> yeah, well, most of them have been the Miz to this point, or like the logo of the season. It's just, you know, Big Dub Diesel, that shirt was hard to turn down when it would pop up. 
Maybe we, um, since we have like the axe to usher now, we can just like crop it onto random people throughout the season. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Photoshop after, game strong. After the challenge, we get a moment from John where he talks about how he feels like it's his time to go into the inferno and he wants to go in for the team and sacrifice himself. This is where he kind of starts to talk about his religion. There is comparisons that happen between him and Jesus Christ. It's a little bla- uh, I think that's a bit much here, bud. Let's settle it down. It really was. Like, it. I was cringing. It's like, dude, I feel like, ugh. You know, like, I, I get what he was probably trying to do instead. Like, he just uh, yeah, as, as the dopey. Lord died for our sins, I'm going to, you know, sacrifice myself for our team. It's like, okay, that's a little bit different. There. It's a little, little different. We're talking about saving humanity versus saving uh, nine drunk people. Okay. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. But everyone on the good guys team gladly acquiesces to his wishes. They decide to send John into the Inferno instead of the Miz, because at this point the Miz cannot go in because he won the Lifesaver. And that gets us into the challenge for Episode 2, which is called, or the elimination for Episode 2, which is called Hang Tough. And this one is pretty easy to describe. The competitor from each team will start on opposite ends of what are essentially monkey bars that are suspended, let's call it 20 feet in the air. And the goal is to climb on the monkey bars toward the competitor from the opposite team and then knock the competitor from the opposite team off the monkey bars. And the person that hangs onto the bars the longest wins. And we get Dan versus John. And this one was pretty cut and dry. And this doesn't really, I don't know what John's strong suits would be, but this <laughs> challenge does not suit to his strong suit. And that's not, not even necessarily a criticism for John. It, this just like, this one was Saying, saying you don't know what his strong suits would be, I think is somewhat of a criticism. It is, but I, it's uh, also true. Because we have I literally no basis. He was the first guy gone. If they, if they were in like a scripture reading contest, then I think he might might, might have come out on top. He's a good musician, right? Like, I think he has... I'm well, sure. no. Dan says he would have killed it at singing Madonna song. So I don't know if they even know he would have succeeded him. <laughs> yeah, and I don't know that his music career really worked out because, oddly enough, and this is only... This is one of those, like... Uh, only in the weird life of Trace Armstrong. Like, I don't know a lot of famous people, but I've had these weird one-time interactions with somewhat famous people at the time in 2005, I was working at a church as a youth group intern and I was at a conference in- intern. Wow. Yeah. And I was at Nashville for a thing, uh, over, uh, new years of this 2005 and he was there. <laughs> so weird. And I had and the, like and a the 20, youth group, what was he doing? He was a youth group leader at a church in That's Kentucky. When he, when this season um, was filming, he was actually a youth group leader for a church in Kentucky, and so when this was airing, you know, he was actually there. So it kind of puts a. Now that I've made that connection, I'm like, no wonder he probably said what he did is he was trying to set a good example for his kids and his youth group. But I remember having like this 15 minute conversation with him in Nashville while we were waiting in line to check out buying CDs and a book. <laughs> it was very weird. But he was a super nice guy, and he answered a bunch of questions about the challenge. And he's like, "Yeah, they keep calling me to do stuff, but it's just hard for me to get away a whole lot." So con John, 
Like what? Not well. This was well, 2005. Yeah. This was 05. So like he had just done Inferno two. He's like, yeah, they still call me, and if I can make it work, I go. But you know, I'm just getting kind of old, and it's hard to do it. And you know, but it, I mean, if they pay me, I'll show up. <laughs> That's basically what he said. <laughs> so, so 2005, John. He's he's a super nice dude, but he was not a musician at that point, Devin. To to what I was getting at, he he was actually working for a church in Kentucky at this point. Very interesting, and. As John goes home, everyone is very emotional. And this is the first season where, at least in the way that they edit it, you are not allowed to go back to the house to get whatever you have before you go home. And members of your team have to kind of say goodbye to you through this, like, uh, these, like, bars on the wall, almost like you're in a jail, you're in a jail cell (laughs) before you have to go back to America. Go ahead, Rob. No, that's what I was gonna say. It's like you're you're in through a cage. Like it's it, it's it's a very different vibe when we've gotten in past seasons where people come back and like talk over past politics type stuff before they go. But in Gauntlet three or Gauntlet two, are you allowed to go back into the house? Because I have an yeah, in, in the duel, I think you're allowed to go back in the house. I have an image in my mind of Derek after he's the last person eliminated from the veterans where everyone kind of surrounds him in the house and kind of sends him off. But maybe that happens then and not in every single instance throughout Gauntlet 2. I, I, yeah. think, I think the duel, you're allowed to go back for some reason. I don't really remember that. I don't think that was – no, I don't think it was the duel. I think it. I think Devin's right. I think it's the Gauntlet that that happened. Okay. But you know what? The duel did take place. Like the actual elimination took place next to the house, so yeah, it's entirely possible. Oh, and you know what? I mean, they didn't interact with the cast, but if you remember on um, Free Agents, yeah, when you got eliminated, you were in the basement. <laughs> you, yeah, like you, everybody else was upstairs, but you were in the basement showering, and you could hear the cast above them in the after shows. Yeah, because Dustin talked about that on that one after show with Mosley. Yep. So, oh, before we kind of put this episode to bed here, uh, I want to make a point about how hilarious is it when John volunteers to go in. Everybody's talking about how brave it is contrast with evan on the duel two where brad's like i might have to go home and he's like well do you need help packing (laughs) (laughs) you know i mean it really is kind of funny to me because if i was on the show and you were like man i think i'm gonna have to go i would probably take the evan tactic and be like man that sucks do you need some help because i mean if you're going home it means i'm not going home (laughs) yeah yeah it does and then julie is not a fan after after the elimination too. Yeah, but she's a little dramatic about everything. So I mean, she's eh. on reality TV. These people are supposed <laughs> to be dramatic about everything. I can't believe I just said that. Yeah, no, you're right. Duh. They're not exactly hiring like you know, <laughs> breaking on. Yeah, well they they are sometimes, but then they don't do it in the future. And then that transitions us perfectly into episode three where we get a lot of people being dramatic before the challenge and i thought we could handle this in two parts so the first part we can talk about how this controversy takes place towards tanya and robin and then in the second part we can talk about how the it involves tanya and beth so at the start of episode three tanya starts to uh or excuse me beth starts to talk to robin about a conversation that she had with Tanya, where Tanya had told Beth that her and Mark 
who at this point is dating Robin, uh, were hanging out in Los Angeles that they hung out and watched movies together and they are quote unquote somewhat dating. And this pretty much sends Robin over the moon. She calls Mark immediately, tells Mark what Beth had told her and Mark vehemently denies all of this. And Robin goes to confront Tanya about this. She gets pretty aggressive about it. She calls Tanya a whore and Tanya escalates the situation and tells Robin uh, after a period of time where she denied quite a bit of it and continue to ask her where she heard this from, tells Robin that uh, Mark is having sex with both of them. And I don't know if we ever get any validation about whether or not this is true or false, but that pretty much concludes the first part of the controversy between Tanya and Robin. Anything to say about this? I totally believe Tanya. I totally believe that in the midst of dating Robin, Mark hung out with Tanya a couple times and they hooked up. I believe it completely. I, I, yeah, have, no, I, I have no real opinion. I have no idea. Like there may be some some truth in here. I think there's so much shouting be... too. It's kind of even hard to keep track of what's going on because everybody's just so out of their mind. They're all so hammered. <laughs> yeah, no, that's what I mean. Exactly. And at this point, we have like a this is a small fire, I would say. And then Rachel comes along and throws gasoline on it when she tells Tanya that Beth is the one that told Robin about the relationship between Mark and Tanya. And kind of in the background, uh, I thought this was really funny. You can see one of the housekeepers kind of like listening into what's going on. (laughs) Isn't that so funny? I noticed that same thing. And she's like, real. you can tell that she's like really interested in what's going on. And I wonder if like the, I wonder how like present the housekeepers and the people, I know the, the, the production staff is to an extent, but I wonder like the housekeepers and like the people that work around the show, like the security, like how present they are and like what kind of relationships they had with people on the show. Yeah, I don't know. I just think it, uh, I just thought it was hilarious too. It was like her telenovela come to life in front of her. <laughs> the moment that Tanya finds us out from Rachel, she goes to Beth, who at this point is fast asleep, wakes her up in the middle of the night, starts to tell Beth that they need to have a conversation about this right now. Beth tells her that if she wants to talk about it, she can go get Robin because she quote doesn't want to talk about this ten thousand times or a thousand times. So I guess I shouldn't quote that and pretty much refuses to talk about the situation with Tanya. Tanya then decides to take Beth's luggage bag, go to the pool and throw the bag of luggage. (laughs) And at this point, the bag of luggage just starts to float in the pool. And Rachel, I don't remember exactly what she says, but she pretty much tells her that she needs to make the luggage bag sink Mm -hmm. and throw more gasoline on (laughs) fire. Rachel is the devil. Rachel just loves to stir the pot, goes over, starts to take Beth's clothes out of her bag, throw it in the pool, goes back into Beth's room, tells her that if she doesn't want to lose the rest of her stuff, she needs to talk about this right now. And the first time that Tanya took Beth's bag of luggage, she didn't notice it. But the second time when she takes Beth's second bag of luggage, she notices, follows Tanya out of the room 
and sees Tanya start to throw her the remaining amount of clothes and belongings that Beth had, throw her, throw this over the balcony down two stories to the bottom of the house. (laughs) And at this point, members of each of the team go outside because at this point it was a pretty isolated incident. But at this point, (laughs) members from both of the teams come outside and see what, what's going on and see that Beth's clothes are in the pool and their eyes pretty much like light up. Like this taking selfies with it. Like Brad can't believe it. Like no one can believe what's going on. Yeah. You know, let's talk about a bunch of stuff here. So first of all, Tanya should not have done what she did. Oh, I think it, no. She's on reality TV. That I mean, it's reality TV, but did. to me, like, you cross a line when you start destroying people's property. That said, that said, if there is anyone in the history of the show that deserved it, at this point, it was Beth. She was the villain, and everyone hated her. And if she had been a cast member that people actually liked, I feel like people wouldn't have been taking selfies. I feel like people wouldn't have been laughing about it. Like, it was obvious that people really don't like Beth because nobody tried to help her get her stuff out of the pool or anything. Yeah, well, you think production at some point probably helped her. Maybe not. I don't know. Sure, but I mean, I I really think, like, if this had been a different cast member, I feel like The Miz or Brad or somebody would have been like, hey, you know, this – yeah, it's funny, but let, let's help her get her stuff out of the pool. It looked like they thought it was hilarious, and they were really happy it was Beth. <laughs> well, you contrast that with this situation versus what happened on the second battle of the seasons when Knight threw Nani stuff in the pool. And at that point, everybody just hated – well, for Knight for that incident. And then with this one, nobody really – everybody's just, you know, thinks it's the greatest thing ever. Yeah. I think, though, you know, it, with hindsight, this was also the point where we also started to realize Tanya could be pretty unhinged. And that's what I mean. I think she her personality significantly changes in this season and the last season compared to her first two seasons on the show. Mm-hmm. You I'm get, not even you, sure if she had, they had the time to give her the air. Like they had they had with the, those seasons had such big cast. I think it's just hard to give the air time. But I feel like if she acted this way in the first two seasons, they oh, would have edited it. Or they oh, would have. That's, that's fair. Because like, what else are they showing in the first battle of the sexes? Uh, they were dying for someone to. to, <laughs> to, to for, they were dying for this to go on. <laughs> They're showing Please Antoine let something with the judge. That's and for the love of God. <laughs> and after this is finished. Beth tells production that she doesn't feel safe. Tanya is forced to go stay in a hotel for the night. And the next day when it's time to go to the mission, Beth refuses to go to the mission until Tanya leaves and she is compensated for her belongings. But the badasses persuade her to go instead. And that gets us into the challenge for episode three, which is X marks the spot. And this one was kind of fun. And I think it was fun because in the same way that a lot of the challenges from this era are very repetitive and there isn't a lot of nuance that goes on from um, person to person and how they perform in the challenge as far as the actual events and strategy that occurs. This one is kind of nice because it doesn't take up much time uh, throughout the course of the show. You get a flavor of how it works and it really only takes up, I would say probably four to five minutes of airtime because all of the action that happens takes place at the start of the episode before the challenge in what ensues between Tanya, Beth and Robin 
And the object for X marks the spot is you are suspended on a platform in front of a, I don't think this is the ocean. This is a lake, right? In front of this lake where you have, yeah, I think it's the ocean or I think it's a lake where you have more control over a lake. So it's probably a lake where you have to swing out into the lake with your partner connected to you. And as you swing out over the lake, you then have a release that you are able to release your partner from being connected to you and catapult them towards these rings that are in the water that are essentially a target. And there are five rings, four that border a ring in the middle. If you land in one of the rings outside of the ring in the middle, you get 10 points. And if you land in the ring in the middle, you get 20 points. And this challenge proves extremely difficult for everyone to participate in. And there is literally only one team on the good guys or the badasses that is actually successfully able to generate any points in this. Yeah, it's it, this looks really, really difficult, especially compared to some of the stuff they've done in prior seasons. It kind of reminds me, they've had some of the missions that have been somewhat like similar concepts. It kind of reminds me of that mission that Kena and Evan went on the duel, where you have to like swing your contestant and then swim back and forth. But with this one, it's not even swimming. They actually have to hit a target. This one was tough. And I think we can say it. The, who scores 20 points? Abe and Rachel scored 20 points. And they're the only team to score throughout the entire course of the challenge on either team. The badasses win. This is their third victory in a row. And this, this in my note, uh, in my notes is where I say the the badasses don't seem like they're that much more talented th- than the good guys. They just happen to win three in a row. And the good guys are visibly shaken by this. Everyone takes this, I think, much more personal personally, and I'm not sure why than they do in prior seasons. And that gets I, us into. Go ahead. Well, I think part of it. Well, first off, if you look at the makeup of the cast, this is a cast that's very competitively focused, especially on the good guy side. Like I'd say, at, at least. Well, I guess John's gone at this point, so all four of the guys are pretty like, you know, they want their money. And then I, I think you could say a lot about the same thing about a lot of the girls in the cast. So I just think the cast is more competitively focused, and then also with a smaller team, it feels more personal when you win or lose than if you're it's like you're just you know one person in a larger conglomerate. Yeah, I would agree. Same. And that gets us into the deliberation for episode three, where Robin finds out that the badasses plan to send her in. And she says that she wants to go against Tanya. Uh, She kind of wants to make this uh, personal situation with her play out. And the good guys say that this is, uh, this is a team decision and that um, they want to think a, a little bit more about who they should send send in transition to the badasses who talk uh, about who they should send in. They bicker back and forth. Beth is vocal about how she thinks it's either her or Tanya that's going to go in. And uh, Dan gets frustrated by the situation. And he says, God forbid, one thing has nothing to do with Beth. (laughs) (laughs) Again, showcases how much they all dislike Beth. Yeah. Dan is great on this season. Um, or at least in these first four episodes, I don't really remember very much what he's like throughout the rest of the season, but he's dynamite so far. But as we get into the nomination, the good guys descent, uh, decide to send into, much to the surprise of the badasses, 
Tina, who was not on the radar for the badasses to be thrown in. And that kind of set, sets Tina off because she didn't even really have a say on, in who would go in for the good guys as they decide to send in Robin. And the end of the show pretty much concludes with Tina uh, saying that if she, well, I can't remember if it's, if she does make it back or if she doesn't make, make it back, uh, everyone has to kiss her ass and pretty much walks off frustrated with her entire team. Do you think that's the right move on the good guys for descending Tina versus like Beth and Tanya? Yes. I, I definitely do. I agree because like Tanya has already shown that it's causing problems on the badass team. I, I think Beth is causing problems. Around. You, you keep them around so that they don't compete well because they can't get along. But you still take out. Yeah. You kind of, it, this really incentivizes you to throw in someone kind of in the middle, right? Because you don't want to like throw in the weak players from the other team because you want to keep them around to kind of act as dead weight. But at the same time, you don't want to throw one of the best competitors in because that makes it significantly more likely that the person that gets selected from your team will go home. I think you have to analyze it on a case-by-case basis. And this would also be different, too, if there were a lot of people at the top and people at the bottom. There's not a whole lot of difference between the top and the bottom here except for the two worst players on each team, which it's even debatable Karamo is obviously the worst on the badasses and Shavonda is probably the worst on the good guys. But you look at the rest of the team and you're kind of like, other than John on the good guys, like there's no easy win there. Not a yeah, single every, one. Especially on the female side, everything, most of these competitors are relatively, but I guess the badasses have a bit more difference with, mm-hmm. I, th- I think, I guess it's like Rachel and Rachel's the number one and then Veronica, Tina and Tanya are somewhere in the middle and then Beth is at the bottom. But every, yeah. all the other sort of like brackets seem relatively even. Yeah, and then on the badass side for the men, you've got Karamo, who's the worst, and you know Dan was showing that he wasn't bad this season. But when you compare Dan to Abram, CT, and Derek, it's like, oh, obviously he's the guy I want to go in because I don't want to go against Derek, CT, or Abram in elimination. And that gets us into episode four, and at the start of episode four. Julie tells Beth that CTNA plan to throw the mission. This really sets Beth off. She goes to confront Abe about this. Abe denies about it. He talks about how frustrated he was when he had to do that in the first Inferno and that he doesn't really want to be part about that. And then Beth and I don't know what kind of logic this, I don't know how this logic works for her, but she then tells them that she's going to throw the mission. And so at that point, she's just going along with what they want to do. So I don't know how that's really spiting them at all. But then she says that she's later on, I think she talks about how she's going to like F them up. Um, Yeah. I think this is when it happened. She said that she's going to F them up if they throw the mission. So it's just more, she's going to take all their clothes and throw it in the pool. Like what's her game plan for chaos here? Yeah. It's just more conflict that exists between Beth and the rest of the, the badasses, but that gets us into the challenge for episode four, which is called run for your money. And this one is pretty simple too. a helicopter will fly over a field and drop, I think in total $10,000 worth of money between 10 different bags. So there are pretty much 10 different moments where money will be dropped on the field. Seven of the bags have $1,000 in them. Two bags have uh, $1,000 in them of $5 bills and one bag has uh, $1,000 of $20 bills. So 
some of the bags when they are dropped are worth a lot more money than the rest. And CT and Derek tell Tina that they want to give her their money and Rachel, Veronica and Tanya do later on so that it will cause Tina to win and that they will be able to send Beth into the Inferno in the hopes of being able to get her off the badass team. But what do we think of run for your money in episode four? I think it's fine. Yeah, it's, it's fine. It's not exciting to watch, but the twist on the second half of the challenge is what makes it, I guess, entertaining. If it was just collect money and the total is who wins, I think I would just be like, agreed. So they have X amount of time to be able to collect the money. There isn't a lot of action that happens. The, Badasses give all their money to Tina, and then at some point throughout the challenge, the good guys, the women on the good guys, specifically uh, Jamie and Shavonda, start to give their money to Robin to try and help her win. But I don't get this. So they want to give her their money they, in yeah, the hopes they that she to throw in. Yeah, I don't get that. Like, like at this point, she probably who's the weakest female member? Shavonda, on, but I don't know if there's that significant of a difference between Robin and Shavonda. I don't think so either. I don't. Yeah, and I don't. I don't know if I've said that, but I, if I did, I don't. I don't. Think that. I don't think with with these girls and the good guys team. Obviously, Jody eventually emerges as the best competitor in later seasons. But at this point, I'm not sure there's a significant difference between anybody. Uh, yeah, I think all of the women on the good guys team are pretty uh, clustered around each and other. Also, like with these missions, like hey, like how how much skill is really involved? I mean, I guess endurance and running around and collecting the money. But I think it's just harder to judge that at this point. The only other funny moment that happens here is that I will say when uh, Daryl's strategy is that when he whenever he sees people crawling on the round on the ground trying to grab money, his strategy is to then run ahead of them and grab all the money in front of them as they try and uh, uh, crawl and get it, which was leads for some good moments. But the twist of this challenge is that after everyone collects their money. Dave Mira tells them that they will then have five minutes to count up their money. And if they do not count up their money correctly, that their money will not count towards their team total and they will be DQ'd. And this is a Johnny Mosley rule if I have ever heard. <laughs> so if you are a, a dollar off, if you are a dollar off the amount of money you collect, not only will your money not count towards the team total, but your money will not count towards your individual total, and you are n- no longer eligible to win the Aztec, Aztec Life Shield. And at this point, Tina is pretty much has like a pile of money that is it seems like it's four times the size of anyone else in the competition. And <clears throat> once the individual winners are revealed we come to find out that tina was ten dollars off winning uh robin who clearly had i think well she had the set before the totals are revealed i think it came about that she had the second largest amount uh to brad on the good guys team we come to find out that derek is the winner for the badasses and the winner for the good guys is the miz and I guess, do we want to say anything about that? I think, I think both uh, Tina and Robin are disappointed that they now have to go into the Inferno. 
Uh, but we do get some controversy from the uh, men on the good guys team toward Robin and I guess Jamie and Shabanda because they didn't necessarily uh, agree to try and help Robin uh, win the life shield. I, I, mean, said, I wish we could have got a bit more explanation as to why that happened. Like, what was their end game there? Who did they want to get thrown in? Well, see, that's think, the thing. I think they were just trying to be nice to Robin, but I'm like, even though I think Shavonda might be the worst on this team, I would not be trying to throw it where Robin wins the life shield because she's kind of a liability herself sometimes. And she so, just like, cries so much. Yeah, like, I don't know that I would be all that upset that Robin went home. So, like, I wouldn't want to throw... I wouldn't say throw a challenge because it would be hard to throw a challenge in this one. But Well, this one you're not even really throwing it. You're just giving your money to somebody else. So this mission actually yeah. is super conducive to trying to get someone to win just because yeah. um, you actually don't have to lose the mission necessarily to do that. Yeah, because like if Robin – like who would Robin pick? I mean I would assume she would probably would have picked Shivana because she didn't have a prior relationship with her. Well, but, but like, if she's helping her win, I don't think you can – maybe that was actually their end game is that they'll help her win and there's – like she can't really pick them if they were one of the ones helping her win. Yes, but like if I'm them, I'm like she's going in anyway. I wouldn't help her. <laughs> I don't understand that. Like that's the one of those things where I'm just like maybe Robin's just they think Robin's like real good at math, so she can like count up the extra money better than they can. I don't know. I, the only thing I will say in contrast to that, if you are like okay, we can help Tina win, so we can get rid of Beth or Tanya. I'm all in on that strategy because they are a team divisive pain in the ass. So yeah, I'm on board with that. Doing it to save Robin. uh, Not so much. This is where we find out that the good guys get their first win of the season. They beat the good guys, $881 to $619. The good guys rejoice and that gets us into the elimination for episode four. And the elimination game in the Inferno is the object is, or I guess the basic premise is that you have a chain wrapped around your waist or a, a chain attached to your waist with weights that are attached through a pulley system at the opposite end that the weights weigh, I think, half your body bait, body weight. And you have to, once... Dave Mira blows the horn, crawl through the sand to the opposite end of the Inferno Arena, where you will retrieve a key and then take that key to unlock a lock that is fastened around you. And the first competitor to unlock the lock wins the elimination. And this one is, I don't know, this one isn't that great. They it lasted the, 20 seconds, literally, yeah. from start to finish. Once the eliminate, there are some definitely some dud eliminations in this season. Once they start, they kind of like start to like bounce around in the air. Um, <laughs> they make it to the other end. Tina wins pretty pretty handedly here. I don't think there's really much more that we can say about it. What do you guys think? It's a dud elimination. It's pretty. It's pretty open and shut here. This is really calling back to like Inferno Gauntlet eliminations. Like we're, we haven't really hit the improvement jump yet. What's important about this elimination is the goofy ass speech that Robin gives about how she was proud to be a good guy and be on the good team. I just, it was so cringy. It was hilarious. It was, I thought it was pretty funny. (laughs) (laughs) 
she like, was like, like, she like, like MTV production is determined you fit the the good guys team mantra better than the other team. What, what an accomplishment! She yeah. like everyone was into it too. Everyone was really emotional over her going home. Shavonda started to cry. Um, there is kind of like an emotional uh, moment that happens with her and each of the people on the good guys is she gives them a hug through the cage and Robin goes home. And that concludes episode four, but I guess the last month. Yeah. Say, hold on. Yeah. You got to get the fight between Beth and Veronica that happened right after. Yeah. The last moment. Yeah. yeah, As we, as we exit episode four, uh, Beth confronts Veronica and tells her that uh, she's tired of Veronica winning and that uh, she is talks about how Veronica is extremely cutthroat and that she'll do whatever she can to win the game. And at this point, yeah, at this point, this like just is, is, is more fuel to the fire of the dynamic between Beth and the badasses. The, the badass women on this season are just such a debacle. Yeah, there's really no other way to put it. They, they're just a train wreck from that perspective. Um, which, they're, like, they're actually solid competitively, but just like inside the house, it's it's just not nonstop uh, infighting. Yeah. One thing I do want to point out too with Veronica, I loved the shirt she was wearing in the Beth fight. It said future MILF on it, and I just found that Good. to be hilarious. Good lord. <laughs> so that pretty much brings us to the end of those first four episodes, man. So what do we think? Uh, what what do you guys think of these first four? I liked them a lot. I thought it was pretty good. These were a breeze to get through compared to some of the episodes for... Compare this to the end of Battle of the Sexes 1 or end of Battle of the Sexes 2, and it's much better. Can we say that these first four episodes of the Inferno 2 are probably the top four episodes of anything we had seen prior to this point? Individual episodes? Yeah. I think there may have been some individual episodes before this that might have been better... But I think the start of both sexes seasons weirdly actually might kind of be better. Hmm. I don't know about that. I think that's a, that's it was, I think that episode in gauntlet three where or gauntlet one, where the Miz sends in coral and coral is really upset by, I think that one was somewhat entertaining. I thought that was a good episode, but Mm -hmm. yeah, a lot these episodes are really great. I think this is like. See, I the, think they're fine. Like, I don't think they're outstanding. I think they're fine. Mm. Like, I, I think like, like the Tanya, like the whole Tanya, Beth, Robin, Rachel incident after the start of episode three is real good. But then outside of that, I don't think there's that many antics to really, that, really all that entertaining. Hmm. See, What's, I, th- I think I really like this season compared to everyone we've seen thus far. Definitely, for a lot of like reasons. so overall, yeah, this is by far the best overall season. We've yeah, done. I love the voting system for this because it's not complicated. One team picks who they want to go against, the other team picks who they want to go against, and then you can get a life shield to get out of it if you're lucky, and you can win. So I love that ability. Like you can. It's easy to follow. It's not, as Devin likes to say, it's not these real ticky-tack rules where you have to, you know, jump through a hoop and, you know, we're going to nominate two people and then we're going to pick who we want from their two people. It's like, no, this just makes sense. I I really like this season. I think both of us, or all three of us, had this very high on our 
best season ranks, and I think the uh, the audience had this very high on theirs too. The, the audience had a number three. ten. Yeah. So I mean, I would agree that that is properly placed in the annals of the challenge. I mean, this I is a top ten season. And we'll probably cover the next seven episodes on the next podcast. And I guess, do we have any closing remarks before we get off to whatever we have to do with the, with our lives? Um, the, so far, just love this season. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks to those of you that bought Johnny Rule Police t-shirts. I still find that hilarious that <laughs> the shop was open a day and we sold several of just that one. So, um Thanks for thanks for the support and uh, keep listening. We've got some fun stuff coming down the pipe. Rob, what do you have to uh, to promote? Yeah, just make sure everybody goes to my uh, Medium account. The link should be posted in the episode and votes in our best female challengers poll, so we can run that episode right after we finish the Inferno deal. What's your Medium account? What is it? Uh, it's medium.com at Vandalay Inc. sixteen. That's V A N D E L A Y I N C sixteen. Perfect. And with that, you can subscribe to us on iTunes. You can go buy your own uh, Johnny Rule Police Challenge Chronicles or Big Dub Diesel shirt at bigdubdiesel.com. You can send us any email questions that you have at thechallengechronicles.gmail or at thechallengechronicles at gmail.com. And with that, have a great day slash night, whatever time you're listening to this too. And we'll talk to you soon. See ya. Bye.